Welcome, everyone, to episode 97 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. We're inching closer to episode 100. We're so close. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we're diving into a thematically appropriate film given the current state of the U.S., though Netflix probably didn't know that at the time they set the release date, and that is Spike Lee's latest, The Five Bloods. But before we get to that, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott? How are you and your A24 hat doing today? I am doing fine. Thank you for doxing me to our listeners that I'm doxing wearing an A24 hat. You, you want me to dox you? I can give them the address out. As if, as if I'm not proud of that fact, and I, I certainly do want everyone to know it, but I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm a little uh, frustrated today because uh, to talk about a totally unrelated movie, I watched last night's 30 for 30, which is one I've been looking forward to for a long time about the the 98 uh, home run chase between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. And I think I jinxed ESPN films by saying that they never miss because they, they missed with this one. And I have a lot of feelings about it, but you can go look at my letterbox if you want to know about that. Um, other than that, I, I saw am, Star Wars doing... in your letterbox. When did you, when did you add the, when did you add the 30 for 30? Oh, I watched that today. I watched Star Wars yesterday. Um, oh, you watched it today. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. I, I've watched three movies in the last two days. I don't know. I'm, I'm at like a movie a day clip at this point, which uh, I guess is good. Like, I think it's it's a way for me to like actually get around to a lot of movies that I've been wanting to, to watch for a long time. But, you know, in reality, I'll probably just be watching Little Women several more times um, in the, in, watch in the next couple finally. of weeks. You know? Yeah, yeah, TV shows, those are a thing too, I guess. But um, there's there's so many movies, Scott. Then there's also a lot of board games and video games. So, yeah, video games. Also been doing that too. I played a lot of The Last of Us yesterday. So, oh, you did? Wait, how far are you? Well, I mean, a lot for me. Like, I probably played a solid two, two and a half hours. Um, yesterday. Are you out of which... Are you out of Boston yet, or are you still in Boston? No, I just got to the state capital. Nice. Okay. Great. So game. There you go. Yeah. Last no, I'm part... loving it so far. Yeah, when this episode drops, Last of Us Part Two, only a day or two away from coming out. So get get excited for that if you're into those types of, of video games. But uh, we are here today more to talk about films. So why don't we go ahead and start talking about that. And today, as I mentioned already, we have The Five Bloods on our roster. So directed by Spike Lee and set in the present day, The Five Bloods follows four Vietnam veterans, Delroy Lindo's Paul, Clark Peters' Otis, Norm Lewis's Eddie and Isaiah Whitlock Jr.'s Melvin as they meet up in Ho Chi Minh City for an expedition back into the Vietnamese jungle, ostensibly to recover their squad leader, Stormin Norman's remains, whose body was never recovered during or after the Vietnam War. In reality, however, they're also after a chest of gold the five of them, including Norman, had found and buried during the war with the plan to come back one day and recover it. As the Four Bloods, plus Paul's son David, played by Jonathan Majors, 
set out for a tour across Vietnam and eventually deep into the heart of the jungle, it becomes clear that the men's intentions may not all be aligned, and the focus shifts primarily to the Trump-supporting Paul and his battle with PTSD that he that he acquired during the Vietnam War and the guilt of a secret related to Norman that it is clear he has not shared with the rest of his squad. De Five Bloods makes for an interesting fusion of Apocalypse Now and Three Kings, but it also is uniquely Spike Lee's own as he interlocks film footage with real-life shots from the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, and even things more recent and related to racism and the plight of black men in America. Scott, did you find Spike Lee's latest to be a film as powerful and as effective as its predecessor, Black Klansman, or did De Five Bloods lose too much of its life somewhere along the way? in the Vietnamese jungle. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is one that we're supposed to be, you know, neutral, unbiased critics, whatever, going into a movie or whatever. But like, I will confess, I wanted this movie to be really good um, going into it because uh, Spike Lee obviously is in, I mean, the greatest African-American director of all time. I think that uh, on fairly firm footing in saying that uh, black Klansman for me was uh, a, top 25 of the decade um, film. Like that is a movie that I really loved when it came out in theaters. And then I actually like watched it again for a class and ended up writing a paper about it. So I ended up sort of studying the movie a lot and finding that just, there's a lot going on there. Um, Racism is bad. A lot of things going on there. (laughs) That is not the only thing that is going on there. Um, And I think that Spike Lee's filmmaking is, is just, incredible in, in that movie and and it really is a movie for our current moment um, like none other and so i was hoping that that this was going to be a movie for our current moment as well right because look i mean he couldn't have timed it any better i guess i mean it's, it feels weird to say that but i think this it, i mean is the perfect time for us to be getting a new spike lee movie with what's going on in our country the black lives matter movement really seeing its greatest surge that it's ever really had and um the fact that this movie just happened to be coming out at this time it's, i guess it seemed probably perfect for for spike lee and i think that unfortunately to some degree even though the movie attempts to be a movie for the moment i think and um, definitely has some imagery that is, I mean, is literally of the moment. Like there's, you know, like he did in Black Klansman, he weaves like nonfiction documentary historical footage and stuff throughout um, the fictional story he's telling here. I don't know that the movie that we get necessarily uh, feels as relevant as, certainly not as Black Klansman, um, and, and maybe as as is wanting to feel. Right? I, I don't know that those moments of like modern day relevance necessarily are justified by the movie because I think the strongest parts of the movie are the anti-war uh, critique, the the critique of uh, what how African Americans were treated in the Vietnam war, like the repeated line, right. That really stuck with me of the, at the Vietnamese, um, people tell th- to, you know, the, the bloods throughout the movie are, is they, they keep saying you killed my brother. Right. And there's a sort of duality going on there because yeah, they, they killed, um, the, the brothers of these Vietnamese people during the Vietnam war, but, uh, you know, America was killing 
their brothers. The U.S. government maybe was killing uh, their brothers by sending them into war and maybe are still killing them today. Right? I think that's where Spike wants to go with it. I don't know that that's where he necessarily gets with it, but probably getting a little bit ahead of myself. I, I think that the movie is just is very messy, I guess it would be my my main critique. It is 156 minutes long. And because Spike Lee is such uh, a, a good filmmaker um and he just has that energy in all of his movies like the, the movie is is very it, it is engaging like it, it it just goes right and, and it's very watchable throughout but i still think it's too long i think it is um again it doesn't know exactly what it wants to be and wants to be saying i think it takes on too much at times um i think that the performances are are good i think obviously as everyone has been saying here Delroy Lindo um, is the standout. I think he gives an electrifying performance as Paul, um, this really sort of complicated, contradictory character. Uh, it's It really is a fascinating character, fascinating performance, but it's like all of the emphasis put on that character and performance, I felt like. Um, and a, a lot of the, the other bloods kind of uh, are left by the wayside. I think in particular, Chadwick Boseman, who is playing Storm and Norman, right? the guy who they all idolize, in particular Paul idolized, that is supposed to be sort of this uh, magnetic cult leader. Uh, I mean, not cult leader, but magnetic leader of their of their squad who they really just sort of worshipped uh, before he died. You don't really get a sense of that, I don't think, of, of what kind of magnetism he had because there isn't that much time given to his character. It's really just in flashbacks or hallucinations. It's really not that much screen time. And I think Chadwick Boseman was probably a little bit miscast for that role. But um, so so unfortunately, this was the satisfying experience that I wanted. And I feel like after the movie, I was thinking about it. And I was like, I almost wish that this movie could have come out in 2018 and Black Klansman could have come out this weekend, because I think that Black Klansman, I mean, I, I, as relevant as it felt in 2018, right now, that movie, I think, would just be an absolute firecracker if it came out, because I think so much of what it is saying speaks to exactly, exactly, exactly the place that we find ourselves in right now. So, you know, it's a hard task that that Spike Lee had to, to replicate. And obviously didn't know that he would be making a movie that would be coming out at this per, you know particular time, what, what would be going on at this particular time. But I feel like it's a missed opportunity in a lot of ways. Yeah, I don't know if I agree that Black Klansman would be a better film of this moment. In many ways, I think what Spike is Lee is going for here with the Five Bloods is more relevant, like more directly relevant to exactly what we're seeing here in terms of like police, police and institutional brutality against against black people and in particular black men. But I mean, you know. Uh, black women as well as to the extent that it's relevant and and black Klansman I think is is doing something a little bit different. I mean, the thing with Spike Lee's films and and, and we talked about this when we talked about Black Klansman and it's definitely something that's going to come up here because there's a lot of it is just this sort of interstitial footage that he takes from real life and 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 sets into his film and and those are pro those are such products of the moment. I think that the actual you know the the shots that he takes for Black Klansman, although I'd say arguably much fewer than what he does here in the five bloods but the really the end of the film which is pretty con i mean i don't say pretty controversial it's somewhat controversial ending to the film uh with the real life footage of 
things happening from was it 2016 or 2017? I think it's 2017. Charlottesville, yeah. yeah, Charlottesville in 2017, and then uh, obviously starting the film with Gone with the Wind, a shot from Gone with the Wind. It, it, yeah, there is the relevance of Gone with the Wind right now with <laughs> something that happened on HBO Max, yeah, uh, <laughs> a week or two ago. But I, I think that the Five Bloods and what it's trying to do, and, and its theme of just so centrally around like America taking Black lives and sort of pushing them off to war to go die or in some cases in in the event of you know whether it's malcolm x which is shown in the film or martin luther king jr uh as well you know people who are who are being killed by you know by the u.s you know whether it's the government or whether it's other people who uh who are citizens of the u.s i mean these things are happening and and so what we're seeing there and the and the violence against black people there feels more relevant uh, even though black Klansman, i i agree was a a better film and in some cases actually a much better film and the, and the tough part about the five bloods is that you're right it's messy and i'm i'm starting just to come to terms with the fact that netflix like you're just so much more likely to to have netflix tell their directors that you know what you don't need an editor just go crazy do whatever yeah. you want and i think spike lee in this case really suffered from that i think he really he really needed an editor here he needed someone to help him refine that vision because you're right. Like he's such a creative filmmaker. His vision is so clear. His like his DNA is like so all over this film, and I love that. Like I love the aspects that really feel very Spike Lee about this about this film. And the problem is, I just feel like it got diluted so much by like all the different ideas diluted each other, and and it really didn't become the sum of its parts in in a lot of ways. And part of that is because I'm not really sure how much of the first hour of the film is even that important. Like they don't even actually set out for the jungle for like 45, 50 minutes, almost an hour into the film. And some of that's important. You're getting to know the characters a little bit. Like this film is very epic in in nature. It feels like, right? Like these, he has this, it's this war, these war flashbacks and these people are venturing into the jungle and they're going to have to make it all the way back out of the jungle. And it just feels like it really, it really drags on in spots and, and the really powerful, like emotionally powerful moments that a lot of which come from Delroy Lindo, especially towards the end of the film. I think that, uh, but, you know, by the time we got there, I was just like, man, I'm just really tired almost from watching this really, really draining film. I, I know you watched it in a couple sittings, so I don't know if you had the same effect, but I, I tried to I, I watched it in one sitting and I found it to be like it, it felt long. It felt very long and uh, for and for lots of different reasons. And I think that I hear what you're saying around it, it being messy. And I think that Spike really could have used um, used an editor to cut down about half an hour off this film. And I think it would have been a lot punchier. Um, because the themes are there, right? The themes are really raw. They're really there. And there's definitely a lot there to digest and to talk about. But I'm just not sure that the story of these five bloods is like interesting as as interesting as Spike Lee wants it to be as it's presented on the screen. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I was thinking the same thing today about Netflix and the tendency maybe of movies like because I was looking at this Will Ferrell movie that's coming out in a couple of weeks uh, yeah. that's with him. it's a Eurovision comedy this movie is over two hours long and I, I was just thinking why like what what is the point of making this what is ostensibly you know a, a studio comedy like style movie um, I think it's, and, and you've, we've seen that for years I mean too it's like mm -hmm. that's one of the great things about Netflix is they'll produce anything like they're they're not really taking us you know taking you know a knife to too much over there and that's why you get a lot of interesting movies that would never get made by by a studio and and most of them aren't very good and that's fine but they still get made and i think that where they've seen success with people like noah bombach or martin scorsese or alfonso Cuarón is that they have like really good senses of the visions they have for their films and they're really good at knowing what's going to actually pop on the screen 
versus like less exp- less experienced directors that Netflix might be working with. And you'd expect that from Spike Lee. But That's what I was gonna say. You would didn't. think that Spike would be able to do it. Yeah. It just didn't. It just didn't actually get there. I mean, Martin Scorsese could have used an editor for The Irishman too, but but like the vision just didn't get there. For wrong. For no, I'm not wrong. He could have used an editor for sure. <laughs> uh, he only has one of the greatest editors of all time, Thelma Schoonmaker. So I well, she just, took just, she took the best, Irishman off. I think <laughs> you best be, you best be Stefan, uh, because Raging Bull has the best editing of all time. But no, the Irishman was not too long. But we're not going to relitigate that. <laughs> yeah. So I I think yeah I think that was one of the struggles for this film overall because again, like I was saying, a lot of the pieces are there, and one of those key pieces is what we've already started to talk about here, and that's Delroy Lindo who plays Paul. He's definitely the outlier of the group. I mean, they all have their eccentricities and they're these four Vietnam Vietnam War veterans here. But Paul is is really someone who feels like he's out. I say out of touch, but not in like, a oh, he's just like so out of touch from reality. But like he's out of touch with the place. It feels like that the other three, you know, you know, survivors here, the the veterans of, you know, Paul, Otis, Melvin, Eddie, he feels out of touch with the rest of them. He's a Trump supporter. Uh, he gets a lot of crap for that from in a couple of the opening scenes from them on that. He, you know, he had a wife who died during childbirth and any, any suffers from PTSD in some ways, very visibly. Uh, whereas some of his other Viet- Vietnam war veteran friends here, the other members of the bloods here. Yeah. They, they definitely have their trauma that they are dealing with, but it's not, they don't deal with it so publicly and it's not as visible as it is with Paul. And I think he feels very alienated for that reason as, as he reconnects with these people and, and he feels isolated in that way. And, and it becomes a really interesting case study over the course of the film, uh, even though it may not have looked like it was going to be that case study for the first 20, 30 minutes of it. And Delroy Lindo really puts on a show I've seen, you know, I've seen, and I think it's universally true that everyone's saying that Delroy Lindo puts the film on his back. Scott, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Cause it seems like you're in agreement with that. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I've never seen Apocalypse Now, actually, um, but I am familiar with Heart of Darkness, right, of, on yep. which it is based and, Same. you know, familiar enough with with the, the film. I mean, this is the Colonel Kurtz character, right? This is Marlon Brando's character in um, in Apocalypse Now. He is like the the guy who just sort of we see him start to lose it more and more as he gets deeper and deeper into the jungle. And I mean, it seems like he's been losing it for some time, but really just, he becomes scary by the end. I mean, he really does with um, the, the intensity and the, the level that he goes to um, at certain points in the movie, I and mean, particularly when the, the, um, the minefield, the minefield scene, which I think is one of the best in the movie. And um, the, I can't think of what their disposal people like the, the landmine disposal folks when they show up. Um, their organization's called Lamb, Love yeah, Against right. Mines and right. um, I can't remember bombs. That's what it is. When he when he uh, the way that he treats them is when you're is really at the point where you're like, oh man, this guy is losing it. But I I wish you know you mentioned the fact that he's a Trump supporter. I almost wish that they would have explored that a little bit more, right? Because he he obviously they they mention it in the beginning of the film when they're like getting back together, you know, catching up and everything, he wears the, the, the MAGA hat, it comes up in some of the most obvious symbolism in the movie. By the end, I was just kind of like, this is ridiculous. Um, yeah. The fact that they brought it back in the climactic scene, I was like, I don't know if this was necessary. And, and in, in particular, like the place that it sits, like at the very end of the movie, it was just kind of crazy. But um, I mean, 
I, I know what he was going for, but again, he's not subtle in any way. If there was one critique I had about Black Klansman, it, it was it like that subtle. there was yeah. a slight, slight lack of nuance in certain parts. I think yeah, that, I, that I is don't mind that so much. True. Like it, like this feels like a period of time where forget subtlety. You just need to be hit over the head with some of these yeah. points, but maybe and, I, I thought the MAGA hat was probably a little bit too much too, but yeah. Yeah. But, but that's why I think some of the monologues that he has towards the end of the film are really effective, right? Because they're, again, they're not that subtle. He is really just, yeah. I mean, there there are sermons like he is saying what he feels. He is speaking to uh, America's treatment of black people, you know, for the last 50 years. Um, you know, he's literally looking right into the camera as if to, oh, yeah. uh, you know, appeal, appeal to the audience. And so I think that's why the, those are electrifying to watch because of his performance, because of how they're written. And like that's those are the moments where I don't mind necessarily um that he gets that he's a little on the nose because uh, yeah i think that that th this is a type of message that needs to be delivered with a sledgehammer the the trump thing i feel like is just an easy target but um i so i wish that uh, but at the same time like i wish that they would have explored that more in terms of internally why what is it about this guy that attracts him to sort of the trump ideology that the cult of personality that trump has i think that would have been somewhat interesting um to look at because i think that there i mean like i think there are people like this oh um, yeah that's what i was about to say because like it's not like he's making this up like, the, like this feels like this is a very it's still a very believable yeah. reality and i'm and these people definitely exist out there i mean joe biden several weeks ago got flack for saying if you're black and you support trump you're not really black and the reason that he got flack flack for that is because there are black supporters who uh black people who support trump and yeah. joe biden doesn't have any right to say that about people yeah, and I, I believe they even say in the middle, like there's a line where one of the characters is like, no, I mean, the, uh, we're not, don't blame us. I think it's Jonathan Majors who plays the son is like, don't yeah. blame us for Trump. Like, we're not the ones who voted for him. But that's actually like not not completely true to your point. Like there, Trump does have black supporters. Um, and so I, I would have, I think that that would have been an interesting area to explore just sort of what yeah. makes him tick with that regard. But I, I think it's a great performance. Again, he... That that anger and the rage that um, he he really brings to this performance is a nice contrast to the other characters. I think because we we don't learn too much about the other characters, unfortunately. I mean, Clark Peters, uh, who plays Otis, he, he's maybe the second most that we learn yeah. about. But then I think as far as um, Isaiah Whitlock and Norm Lewis, like we don't we don't know that much about their characters. Um, we know so we know a little I, bit about Melvin, who is Norm Lewis, but. Honestly, yeah. God, I couldn't tell you a single thing about Isaiah Whitlock Jr.'s character. I mean, honestly, I don't. Eddie, I don't know anything about it. He has was the metal really detector. That's it. I was really hoping that Norm Lewis would be singing because that guy can sing. But um, regardless, uh, I, I think that this is the clear standout performance because I think that's the way the script is written, I guess, yeah. is my point, is that whoever is playing this role, as long as it's not, you know, I don't know. I was trying to think of some terrible. Like, I mean, Billy Zane obviously wouldn't make any sense because he's white. But you, you know what I mean. As long as as long as you give it to a capable actor, which Delroy Lindo is, right? Like he has proved that over the years. He's he is a very reliable character actor. Maybe he hasn't got done a, a lead role of this magnitude before, but at the same time, he has a very good working relationship with Spike Lee. This is his third or fourth time working with him. In the movies where he has played more of a lead role, it, it has been in Spike Lee movies. So I think he was do for this kind of performance and so it makes sense right that that his performance is so strong that's not to take anything away from what he does here but i think like you almost can't miss like i'm saying when you have a character that i think is this fleshed out uh, as opposed to a lot of the others who i think probably aren't but 
I think I think he's really good. I think he should be in the Oscar conversation either for lead or supporting. I, I don't really know how they all campaign for him, but I, I think he's strong. And I think his relationship with with Jonathan Majors, who who plays his son, who's probably the other really good performance in the movie, if I had to point to one, um, I think that's an element that works pretty well. Yeah, I, I really like. Um, I mean, the, I mean, the performance is amazing. I really like Jonathan Majors. I liked him last year and last black man in San Francisco. And I'm really looking forward to him in Lovecraft country, which is coming out in a couple months on HBO. It's a mini series on HBO starring him in the lead role. And yeah, I'm just, I think that this, there's some really great central performance. I'm a, I'm also a big fan of Clark Peters here. I think Clark, I really like Clark Peters character. It's less interesting than Paul and there's less to work with from a script perspective, like you're saying, but I still like this character. He feels like the natural, like spiritual center of the group. And I think that, uh, ultimately, it, it, it a lot of the inter intergroup or intra group tension is is between him as like the soul of the group and and, mm -hmm. and Paul and I think that that leads to some very interesting um, scenes in, in the film when when they do have to come to head with each other uh, come come up against each other and overall like yeah other than that there's really not much there as much as it feels like an ensemble film there's not it doesn't really feel like there's much deeper beyond those sort of three most significant roles as much as I, I would have liked. I mean, some of the, some of the characters almost seem throwaway. Like you're not even really hundred percent sure why they're in the film at all. And yeah. Can but, we talk about Melanie Thierry's character of the heady, heady the French heady. woman? Yeah. Um, what, what was that? Uh, well, I just don't understand her, her purpose in the, like she's, I guess she's supposed to be like a love interest for Jonathan Major's character, but like, why does this movie need a love interest? I just thought it was, was so weird and I never really felt very much for this character. Yeah. Oh, I also didn't care that. I mean, I think that Otis is a good character. Clark Peters is a good performance, but I didn't care that much about his subplot. In fact, like I just, I, th I could see that that coming from a mile away, right? Like from the, the very first moment where he, at the beginning of the movie, like he disappears from the group and they're like, Oh, where's Otis? And, somebody's like oh he has some business to attend to and i literally in my head was like i bet there's a vietnamese woman that he probably had a relationship with in the war he's gone back to visit her and sure enough next scene he's knocking on her apartment door well it's also, like, it's also their business partner to get the gold out of the country it's a little bit more yes it's a little bit more nuanced than that but yeah no that's your point it's not subtle and that subplot that i agree yeah. that, that that subplot with him and his arc and whether or not he has this daughter with this person as well. That's not particularly interesting to me. I mean, I guess it was a nice emotional little like minor note at the very end of the film or whatever. But really what to me is like what, what I cared about with this character is what his relationship is like with, with the other people in the group and in particular Paul and, and what their relationship was like with Norman, you know, separate from each other. And cause, cause I think a lot of that, again, going back to that sort of alienation piece for Paul's character is that, I think he feels alienated in a lot of ways because his relationship with Norm was different than the rest of the group too. Uh, and that's obviously, it becomes very obvious by the end of the movie what that is. Cause that's kind of the whole final, you know, Delroy Lindo's Paul's final moments of the film is exploring how that relationship was different and how that relationship ended when, when Norman died. And I think that was a really, a really interesting part of the film that I honestly didn't, I didn't see coming. Um, I was a little bit taken aback by that. I didn't see that coming at all, but I I really liked that, and I really liked that aspect of the of the performance from Clark Peters because I, I agree the subplot there, and, and most of the subplots even with any of the any of these other minor characters, it's not particularly interesting. Um, I mean, he, 
I guess there's like kind of a subplot with Melvin around how he's lost all his money and things like that. It's just not, it's just not interesting at all. But, but that's another, I, I saw, and I saw somebody like, I think it was a, tw- a tweet or a letterbox review or, or something. And they were like, anytime you have a movie with a bunch of old guy, old people getting back together after a long time. And one of them is, is like supposed to be rich. He's actually lost all blown all of his money. Like with, without fail, that is what has happened every time. So I, and, and that, like, I think that's true too. Like, I, I think that's definitely a trope. So again, I think there's, there's just it's, it's a little bit of generic elements going on here that, that I w- wasn't a, a huge fan of. So. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, a lot of this, a lot of this would be more forgivable if you just don't spend so much time with these things in the film, right? It's, it's 150, whatever minutes it is, whatever you, I can't 155 or whatever it is. And you're spending a lot of time with these characters and they just feel a little like the characters themselves are, are clearly not shallow, but like the level of detail in which you get to know these characters doesn't feel that deep beyond Paul, maybe David, maybe Otis. But past that, like you're, you're spending a lot of time with these characters and really not getting that much. And and it really feels like a lot of their relationships too, going back to the the flashbacks that we were alluded to earlier with with Chadwick Boseman's Norman, like some of it's there. It feels very weirdly paced those flashbacks. It feels like you get a lot of them in the first act of the film. And then they just kind of disappear for like an hour and a half. And then they come back like, right, like kind of between the second and the third acts of the film. And you, you kind of get some of the big reveals there around what happened. And you're just like, I, this feels like it, it, it should be developing these relationships more. Cause it did a good job developing the relationship um, at the, like, or I'm uh, sorry, developing the, the culmination of the relationship at the end of the film. But I agree with you with something that you were saying much earlier that it doesn't really feel like it does justice to to understanding what these men's relationship was like with him. I mean, you get some of these scenes, but it's clear that they're all close. But I don't think you understand the individual relationships uh, with this leader. And and maybe that's just something that, that I personally can't understand. Um, having not been in war, not being a black man, like the relationship that these people surely must have developed just from being black men in the Vietnam War together in the same troop that shared experience it's obviously a really important part of their relationship that i can't ever understand from being a white man in 2020 but uh it, it, i i i can't help but I, I wasn't able to walk away saying that i really i really got the relationship between these men and their squad leader yeah no i i agree like i think it, some of it is again how the movie was written i don't think we have enough time with norman but also like i'm i, I just don't think i'm a huge chadwick boseman fan i really i really really don't think that I am. I, I don't know that he is right for this role. Like, I don't think he has that kind of magnetism where like he comes on screen and it's like, wow, I just want to watch this guy. Right. Which is what this role is. Right. It's, it's like, you have to believe that all of these other four guys are, are caught under his spell. And I think even with a better script, I don't know that like Chadwick Boseman is necessarily the guy who's going to give you that. Like I want like Sterling K Brown. That would have been. Yeah, I was choice. thinking I think that Sterling, has like Sterling K. Brown presence. has that magnetism. Yeah. yeah um, or even like a Daniel Kaluuya, right? Like, I think those are guys who would have yeah. would have made me believe it a, a little bit more, I guess. It's also weird. Like, I don't have as big of a problem with it as some reviews that I read did. But like the fact that he is so much younger than them, right? They don't de-age these guys when they're in like the flashback sequence sequences. And so it's yeah. weird that like. You know, these guys who are mostly in their 60s, probably these actors are being like, you know, drawn in by Chadwick Boseman, who's like barely 40, maybe. Um, Chadwick Boseman is not 40. There's no way Chadwick Boseman's 40. He's he's close to 40. I think he's probably in his late 30s. But 
I did think that that was that was a little strange. Again, I don't have as much of a problem with it because I actually agree with. I think it was David Sims that made this point that it it kind of works in a way because it's them looking back at their past and feeling yeah. like, hey, we could still do the same things now that we did back then. Like the the version of ourselves back then is is still the same as we see ourselves, uh, you know, today. And and maybe some of this movie is them grappling with the fact that, well, I don't know that that you actually can anymore. Yeah, I, I didn't mind it so much. I thought, look, people complain about the about the aging and like the aging yeah, the technology and the Irishman. People complain about it not being de-aged here. I'm just like, guys, what do you what do you, what do you want? You're like, looking for a reason, yeah. Yeah, like I just don't understand what what you're what what you want here. Like, <laughs> what's, I guess you just don't want people to play younger versions of themselves, and you don't want people to like at all. Like, I don't know, maybe that's cool. I guess uh, people didn't yeah. give Robert De Niro too much crap in the Godfather Part Two, but whatever. Um, I I think yeah. that. What? Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, it, it didn't bother me that much. And and I for your point here, and, and I guess David Sims point, and, and I felt the same way, like this makes sense because I think so much of this is wrapped up in the connection between 2020 in Vietnam and the 1960s in Vietnam. Like it's so it's so critical that these that these that these two times feel the same for these people. I think it's really important for their story and super important, especially for Paul, because he's never moved on from it. Like he's just so clearly never moved on from what happened there. Um, so I think it, it, it works in that way. And even if, even if it didn't work in that way though, it doesn't matter. Like, I, I think that it was fine. Like, I just think that it didn't matter at all. Yeah, no, it, it, it's not a big drawback. I did think it was worth addressing. My last point on the cast is that I did think it was funny that uh, ja Jasper Piconin and, and Paul Walter, Paul Walter Hauser showed up again as uh, the good Not guy. Racist. I mean, ostensibly good guys here when after playing KKK members. In particular, Jasper Piconin played the you know the the worst guy probably in Black yeah. Landsman Felix. But um, I, I did think that that was interesting uh interesting bit of casting there but um, yeah so i had yeah. to throw them a bone after absolutely putting them out to out to pasture i guess so yeah um yeah i i thought it was funny i thought that was funny as well and uh, i think that again though kind of like uh melanie thierry's character did we meet these guys in here i mean look okay so i guess oh, to, to, to play devil's advocate here at least melanie thierry's character is it's not really meant i mean yes a love interest for david whatever but i think the real point of it is to show this sort of rift and disconnect between david and his father paul here and it's to it's a tear it's to really show that there is this there's this very clear space between them because david is not on board and doesn't have the same um doesn't have the same sensibilities as his father who is very much like you know forget everyone else it's very tribal like it's you and it's it's me and my my blood my family against everyone else that needs to be and david clearly has a more worldly view or at least communal view of of how he how he views uh, his morals and his personal ethics and things like that. And I think that that, that Terry, that Melanie Terry character, Hetty is used to, to show that difference when but, David doesn't, doesn't, doesn't choose his father over, over saving yeah. these people. I, I don't disagree with that, but I think that's part of the problem. Like, right. That she's used as more of like a tool, like more of a device than she is as an actual like fleshed out character. Are you saying that women should have their own characters? Scott? <laughs> How dare you? Have, have I not made myself clear on that point on right. on this podcast? But look, yeah, I know no, we, I, I know we watched the way back the other day, but that doesn't mean every movie has to have female characters in it that means something. I also uh, I also feel like uh, this is skipping ahead to the end, and so That's fine. I guess a little bit of a little bit of a spoiler. But I 
on the same note of like these three characters, I thought I found it so strange. Like I didn't know exactly what he was trying to say at the end of the movie when someone's money, I think, is it Eddie's money? I can't remember whose share of the gold, right? Goes towards like this foundation that is named in honor of, of Jasper Pekonen's character, who of course dies after getting blown up by a landmine. I was like, is this supposed to be some point about how it is like the white people who die that are getting all of the, the attention and the, you know, laudation after um, this event and, you know, Eddie and um, Melvin, like the, the, them who, who passed away, they're not really like, they're kind of forgotten in a way. Like, I, I don't know. I, I felt like that was a weird moment or, or like, I didn't know again, because of how the, the way the characters were presented, like, is this supposed to be like a happy ending, right? The, the foundation gets all of this stuff. Cause I'm like, no, this money should not be going towards the foundation well, no, named I, after some random guy. Like, I, I think that Mel, I think, I think that Hetty, Thier Melanie Thierry's character gives her cut yeah. to start this foundation. It's Hetty's character. But then there's also Mel's, Mel's cut. Who's who is the one for spoilers here is the one who, who gets blown up by the landmine. His cut goes, no, Eddie, to the Eddie gets blown up by the landmine, right? No, no. Eddie jumps on the grenade at the end. Eddie is Isaiah Whitlock. I'm pretty sure. I thought Eddie was Norm Lewis. No, I don't remember now. Oh, yeah, man. I think I think he is. <laughs> Eddie is Norm Lewis. Okay, yeah. Eddie's yeah. Eddie's Eddie's share goes to the Black Lives Matter um, group at the end because that's what he wanted, right? That's that yeah. is the the debate that they sort of get into at, at yeah. right at the point right before he blown up. Yeah. Yeah, Eddie's Eddie's share goes to the Black Lives Matter, and I I assume that it was it was Mel it was Hetty's share that go that makes the foundation. For, yeah, I just didn't know what we were like. What were we supposed to feel about that? Because again, like it's intercut. Uh, I didn't with, take anything away from it. <laughs> yeah, but maybe, it's maybe, intercut, maybe it's intercut with like the way that the other people's money is being used. Like you said, they're like yeah. Eddie's money is being used to support the yeah. cause. Like. Uh, Otis goes back to like his daughter and like th those are things that I feel like the movie wants to emphasize. And then there's just this random subplot again about like these white people's charity that gets benefited by this whole thing. Yeah. I'd have to go back and think a little bit more about that probably. But I, yeah. I, so a part of it was just, I think showing that the, the, cause, cause Norman wanted the money to like be redistributed to black, to like the black right. cause, right. The African-American cause. And I think that, uh, like what was the charity yeah, for again? Not that, but like, yeah, I was gonna say what was I don't even remember. Like, it's like cl clearly this had no impact on me whatsoever. So take that for what it's worth. It just struck me as odd. I don't. I mean, I don't know that it was a major point, or uh, maybe there's just something that I, I missed, or what you know again what exactly Spike was going for. But it did stand out to me as odd when I was watching the sort of the final montage, which I think I guess to to go there like is powerful, like as a self-contained piece of you know cinema i guess but again at the at the end of this film i don't know that the film really earns like these this footage of like people black lives matter rallies and all of this stuff like again i i don't think that the movie did a necessarily a great enough job of of tying things into 2020. yeah i don't know if it's necessarily this job to be doing that and the is the footage from 2020 no, no. I mean the the Black Lives Matter footage, but but that like you you bring that point up. I, I almost felt like 
did he go and add this in like in the last two weeks or something to the movie with everything that has happened? Like it, it like I understand, like it, it's not completely out of step with what is going on in the movie, but it almost felt like it was, it was tacked on a little bit to sort of like cater to the current moment. Yeah. I, I mean, that might, that might be, I mean, that also could be Netflix. <laughs> editing and I don't know, but that um, probably isn't what happened, but it did like make me think that it's hard. It, it, it is hard to separate those two things given the current state of, of everything that's going on with the Black Lives Matter movement and in America, but I, I think the thing for me is that I I just I, I feel like Spike, especially with Black Klansmen and now Defy Blood, Spike Lee is like really trying to show to use like a narrative story, you know, in Black in Black Klansmen from you know a while ago and from Defy Bloods, like a a story that's very much steeped in like the present, and using that and then using sort of some sort of like deductive or sorry inductive reasoning to then say and this is like this is a microcosm of larger movements and large and like a larger themes going on in society uh in their own nuances in their own ways and and then really using that and so for me i think thematically it still felt fine i get how it's hard to separate that from the present moment and feeling a bit on the nose but I, i wonder if this movie had dropped a month ago instead of this past week if you would have felt the same way yeah i i don't know like I, I I get what you're what you're saying. I, I guess I just felt like I I don't know. I, I lost my train of thought about. What well, I no, saying. but I think to back to your point, I, I think that it feels it feels different when it, you haven't like had a slam dunk of a film, right? Like because yeah. it's a little bit because it, it's a little bit messier and a little bit less precise with its very you know emotional message that it's trying to deliver and a little bit blunted in that way because it has to have this sort of epic ending to the whole story and this massive kind of firefight <laughs> uh action scene towards the end of the film almost it, it feels like it blunts the message of the film almost i don't know but maybe yeah. that's what you're going for well i think that like again the part that really works and comes across strongly i think is like the whole here is the all of these black soldiers were sent to fight in Vietnam and kill a bunch of Vietnamese people who, you know, were were unfairly pressed into this war in the same way. Like and, and the black soldiers are fighting for a country. Right. Who doesn't care about them? Like at this at this particular time in history. And obviously the place he wants to go with that is that and still today. Right. The, we don't care about black people. They are they are asked to sacrifice a lot for a country that that doesn't give them very much. But I just don't think we see that in the movie, right? He is he is asking us to just rely on our knowledge of where. And I mean, of course, this is true, right? Of course, it is true what he is trying to suggest. But it's like he wants us to just take that from our knowledge of how America is in. 2019 and 2020 rather than like actually showing us that world in the movie again because they're in they're in vietnam right for for most of the like for all of the movie i guess like we don't we don't uh we don't really get a sense of america 2020 except for like when it comes up in you know a conversation here and there again the trump thing comes up stuff like that i i just wanted him to to show that more i guess in the movie than to just kind of say Hey, look! You guys know this. What's this is what's going on in the world? Like, I, you know, I I don't know that that was that was just the way I felt. It felt like here I'm going to tie in some footage. Just I'm going to tie in some historical footage um, to show you guys how this is still going on, rather than just like making it part of the movie. Yeah, I I mean he did the same thing with Black Klansmen, and I don't like he he did, but I don't I think Black Klansmen 
I just I mean, felt that's like not it's set in the present day. So no, it, it's not. But I, I felt like he, he spoke to the, because, because like David Duke, right? Like the, the whole character of David Duke and what David Duke represents in the movie is still what, what David Duke and what white supremacy, like that strategy that David Duke is talking about in the movie, right? Of, of here is how we're going to um, get our message across. It, we're going to, you know, get political leader. We're not going to present ourselves as, hey, we're, we're burning crosses on people's yard. We're, we're lynching black people. We're going to present ourselves as like a political base, right? And we're going to try and get people in at every level of government, right? That, that is what David Duke is talking about in the movie. And like when you watch that, you realize, hey, he's not just talking about 1960. He's talking about now. Like he's, he is maybe talking about now more than he was talking about 1960 whenever Black Klansman is set. And so I think stuff like that, like he makes a, a stronger, more subtle tie to what is going on in 2020 America than he does here with just sort of some thrown in historical footage. I mean, look, I, I don't think that the historical footage was that great in Clansman yeah, either. Yeah, like, I, yeah, I, 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 I've come to understand why he does what he does, because I think the brilliance of the ending of Black Klansman is that he he makes you feel like there's a false sense of security with these sort of like wish fulfillment scenes where he's calling out David Duke and all this stuff. And then he just like jars you with the cross burning at the end. And then the, the, um, the historical footage. And he's like, Hey, you thought you were safe, right? Like you thought, Hey, we're going to go home. It's a happy ending. Racism is over, but no, here's what I'm going to leave you with. I'm going to leave you with, this is what things are currently like. This is still going on and you can't ignore that. And that was powerful. Yeah, and I think the that maybe the Five Bloods is going for something a little bit, a little bit even more subtle and, and nuanced than that, like almost like too nuanced. So because it, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I think this sort of, I don't know what the right word is, like know, disagreement or separation or you know lack of alignment between it, it, within the group, right? Like you have Paul, and then you have the other three members of the group, basically. Like that's that's kind of how it shakes out by the end of it. And I think that there may be some sort of analysis of like guys, we have to get our ducks in a row. Like we have to, we have to hear each other. We have to like unite around each other because we went like, we went into this jungle with the four of us and, and we weren't all on the same page. You know, we, we wanted similar things, but we didn't, we didn't, we couldn't necessarily agree on how to get it done. And by the end of it, it was a total disaster. <laughs> like half, uh, half of them yeah. die. And the other half are like, per, like, like, did they really come to terms with the, with the devils? They went into the forest to, to resolve or to the jungle to resolve like probably maybe probably not though i don't know and and there could be some sort of like more nuance message there i think i'm digging pretty deep i don't think that's on that's definitely not on the surface of the film um but I, and I, maybe i'm just given maybe i'm reading too much into to maybe a more subtle message that you can draw more directly in, into the present i don't know or directly into the present day um but that i think that's maybe one potential look there if you wanted to draw a parallel but we've been we we sort of really took off on a on a whole consortium of different kind of conversation topics here which is totally fine uh but i do want to circle back around and at least talk about one more thing um going back to delroy lindo's delroy lindo's character and, and that is like the the resolution this character faces i mean uh full spoilers uh, not that we haven't already been talking full spoilers but he's like brutally executed at the end of this film by the vietnamese soldiers or i don't even know if they're soldiers just civilians i don't know um and and uh, yeah, and that's after he sort of separated from the rest of the group. And I, I wasn't really sure where they were going with this, to be honest, because it 
it really felt like at some point they were going to come back together and fight them off. Cause that's just kind of like what the movie felt like it was going to be. And then in the end, no, he, he goes his own separate way. He goes deep into the jungle. I mean, he's completely lost his mind at this point. He's like completely separated from reality. He's hallucinating um, Norman in, in the jungle. He gets bitten by a snake. He's having these like, mul- this is what you're talking about earlier. These like multiple minutes long monologues directly, like fourth wall breaking monologues almost into the camera. Um, and it's an incredible performance. But this sort of, he comes to this realization. Well, he didn't come to it. He's done this all along. But he comes to terms with the fact that he was the one who killed Norman in the Vietnam War. It was an accident. He didn't mean to. He was, in fact, trying to save both their lives. But he shot Norman and Norman died in his arms. And he's never been able to get over that. And he has this sort of come to Jesus moment in the forest where he forgives himself. for. I mean, this, the, his hallucination of Norman allows him to forgive himself. And then he's executed. You know, by these Vietnamese soldiers, Scott, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this because this is a very different ending than than uh, the other ending that you get the sort of like showdown scene in in a temple uh, for the rest of the flood the the bloods. Yeah, I mean, again, I think this is just further reinforcing like this his commentary on on the Vietnam War in a way. Like this is a, a what I guess his his reading is this was a pointless war in which there are no winners, right? Like the the Vietnamese people end up executing um end up executing paul and like you know you're not going to sit there and say oh well they did the right thing certainly not but at the same time you're like well like they're doing this out of revenge right because the u.s sort of instigated this war and they feel like hey these are the people who who killed my family members even and, though and more directly just killed killed his literal brother like right like a couple of scenes yeah. before yeah, uh, but even though, like, again, Paul and, and the other African-American soldiers, they are, you know, sort of innocent victims in the whole thing, too. And, like, that's that's the whole brutality of it, I guess, is just that what what we end up with is not the people who are responsible for all this being punished. It is the victims of the war killing each other when really they are kind of in the same boat in a way of um, the way that they've been vilified for um, for for their actions in in a war that they never never asked to be part of and so I, I again I think this is a strong part of the film his his critique of the war I think comes comes through loud and clear and I am am uh, moved by it in 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 many ways and, but I just don't think that this resolution necessarily again, uh, uh, t- ties into what he's trying to say about contemporary America, maybe. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. I think it's. Um, I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly a very powerful few scenes there in the in the jungle with Paul, and the cinematography takes a real left turn in the direction it goes with how it's being shot, and again being very claustrophobic, right in the face, kind of dead on looking right into Paul, letting him, you know, like you said, sermonize uh, in, into the camera, and it's very effective. It feels like the it feels like the appropriate end for Paul's narrative arc. And maybe part of the whole movie is that Paul's narrative arc feels separate from everyone else. And in that way, you know, for one reason or another, it feels a little bit disconnected, even though it was the most emotionally powerful uh, couple scenes in the film. So take that for what it's worth, I guess. Yeah, it's it's very abrupt. right? And I mean, maybe maybe it's just the point, but it's just like. Like you say, you almost think that, and maybe in this way, it does kind of mirror what I'm talking about with the ending of Black Klansman, right? Where you think you're going to get out of the woods, like you think everything's going to be okay. You think Paul is going to find his way back to the group and they're going to 
you know, reconcile and they're all going to fight their way out of the jungle and live happily ever after. And no, that's not what happens. Instead, he is brutally killed and it's shocking and um, like there's obviously a point there. Um, and, and so maybe maybe that part of it is effective as well. I, I, again, I just think the movie is all over the place. Yeah, I, I think the last point here before we do move on is is the way that that he is executed. I think it's it's supposed to remind you about how the police execute black men. I think that's supposed to be very it's, reminiscent yeah. of how America treats its citizens uh, the same way as these Vietnamese soldiers who have been wronged, whose families have been murdered, who ha- are having literally the gold that America was sending to them stolen from them by these people are treating them. At, and, and you're getting the same treatment from the U.S. and from from these people who are executing Paul. Maybe that's a bit of a stretch. I don't know if that's what Spike Lee is going for here, but I think you could potentially draw that comparison. It seems like pretty that would be pretty subtle for Spike. But hey, I mean, I think he deserves some credit. Like he's, he's it'd be he's pretty master. subtle for blowing fifty holes into Delroy Lindo's body. But yeah, <laughs> take it for I mean, like I mean, what, but I mean, in, in connecting that specifically to like police violence in twenty twenty America, I think that would be. I'm not saying that it doesn't you're have wrong, to be 2020. Saying, it can be any, well, any year. Okay. Pick a year. Sure, sure. But uh, I think that that is. I don't know that that is right there on the face of the movie. But no, um, I don't think so either. But an interesting point. Yeah. All right, guys. Let's see. Before we wrap up, I'd ask you where it fits in the Spike Lee filmography. Uh, it seems like it's not near the top, but where exactly is it fitting in for you? Yeah, the problem is I probably haven't seen a lot of the ones that people would consider to be lesser Spike Lee yeah, movies. Right. Like in particular, like the two thousands, right? I think, and maybe the late nineties even are are kind of he was putting out a lot of movies. He went through a lull. I think there are, there are a lot of movies that people probably don't talk about as much compared to you know something like uh, Malcolm X or Do the Right Thing or Summer of Sam or Bamboozled. Like these are the movies that you she's got to have it you know these movies you think about when you think about spike lee not miracle at saint anna or whatever the stuff he was making in the the mid 2000s um there was inside man there was there was inside man but even that right is it which is a good good movie but it is like a straight up uh genre film like that is just a straight up crime drama like which it it didn't have the spike lee stamp on it right um i I think a lot of the more uh, you know, movies that were trying to have a racial critique in them didn't come off as well, perhaps. But um, so, so this probably is near the bottom for me. I mean, I think Do the Right Thing is a top 10 all-time film, honestly. Like top, top 10 greatest movies ever made, in my opinion. Do the Right Thing is in there. Um, and Black Klansman, like I said, top 25 of the decade for me. So I, I, don't, I don't even think that this comes toward the mid-tier of like, like I think Malcolm X is, is good again it's overlong inside man good um you know there there's a few others that i like i think that this is sort of in the low low mid tier probably of spikes oeuvre for me yeah i mean you're talking about malcolm x i mean that that film's like three and a half hours right that's like Mm -hmm. that's like a irishman length movie but um yeah no i think i think this is probably somewhere around the same lower middle i mean I don't I don't know if I've even seen as much Spike Lee as you have, to be honest. I again I haven't seen many of those films, but of the ones I have seen, I think generally I've I've been left I don't know, more thought. I I I think I've been I they've stuck with me longer. And the thing with the Five Bloods is that there's gonna be parts of it that stick with me for sure. But honestly, the longer I I've sat with just this film and it's only been two or three days since I watched it, 
the less positive I think I am about it. I think the more the more muddled I think the whole film is. And uh, I don't think it's bad. I think it's good. It's just not great or amazing or anywhere near a masterpiece like Black Klansman was kind of verging on. Yeah, I, it is interesting to see all of the praise that's going on because a lot, I mean, this is very highly rated critically. A lot of people saying this is clearly the best movie of the year. Yeah, I didn't, I don't, I didn't get that. I, I don't believe but. that. I think that people are just happy to see a real movie by a real filmmaker again in the midst of this uh, pandemic. But I think that there Take that, are Corey Finley. You're not a real filmmaker. Yeah. Take that, Josephine Decker. Films about women, they're boring. We need war movies. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, let's, put a, let's put a cap on this one. On that uh, note, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite scene or moment from The Five Bloods? I really liked the landmine sequence. Mm. I think it is, it's incredibly tense, right? That, that was like the, those were the scenes that reminded me the most of Black Klansmen, maybe just because of the, the tension that I felt. Um, you know, are these characters going to get out of it? I mean, again, it's shocking when the mine first goes off and kills oh, yeah. Lewis's character. And Jump scare. Yeah, him sitting there with all of his appendages blown off is, is kind of terrifying. And then, of course, Jonathan Majors gets himself into it. I, I Like, the tension that I felt, I wanted to feel that tension throughout the movie. And, like, by the time we got to the temple shootout, I was just like, all right, let's let's keep it moving. Let's Let's get this over with, you know? Yeah, the temple shootout, it really felt like they did the wrong order of operations there. They should have had that and then Delroy Lindo's yeah. scenes. I, but... almost, I almost felt like a lot of the violence was very like Tarantino-esque at times in this movie. Like the way yeah. that it comes out of nowhere, it's shocking. It's over the top and it's almost like the effects are almost like deliberately like cheap looking. Like that, all of that stuff. I've kind of reminded me of of Tarantino. Oh, I didn't think bit. the effects were that cheap looking personally, but really okay. Maybe yeah, it's not... just like the cartoonishness of like. Yeah, the the yeah, violence was very. It was very graphic. Stuff, yeah. It was very graphic, um, very over the top. It did. It, it. I will give you that. It. It definitely felt Tarantino like in the nature of the violence, but yeah, uh, I didn't. I didn't get the cheap effect. I mean, shit. Netflix throws enough money at its films; it's not going to look cheap. I don't think, unless yeah. it's intended to be. Well, but, I, yeah, that's what I was going to say. If so, like, I think it was probably like deliberate. But yeah, unfortunately, I just think that uh, that's that's sometimes what happens when people get their appendages blown off by landmines. I don't know. But sure. anyway, I, I yeah, I think that that landmine scene was a real turning point in terms of like, oh, like, OK, this film's like kind of heat up a little bit now. And it did for like for the next like 40 minutes of the film. It really heated up. The problem is there's still 20 minutes after after that 40 minutes to kind of let you down really slow at the end of the film. But yeah, if not the landmine scene, then I really enjoyed the scene when they got to the valley, right? Like when they finally got to the valley and they started finding, the, digging up the gold and going and like running through uh, the area. And, and it's like this one moment where they're really all kind of united and sharing in this whole, you know, this is what we like. This is why we came here ostensibly for this. And we're united in this one moment because it really feels like the only moment in the film where they're really all united uh, and on the same page. And I don't know, maybe that is also a, a message or a nuance there and that it takes it takes a chest of gold to to get these men united i don't know but i don't know if there's too much to read into there but i really liked that scene and it felt like um for a movie that where everyone really did feel alien or well i should say paul really did feel alienated from the group it was in this moment uh he was sort of reunited but because I, I think that's a little bit more of a low-key top pick for the film because i think the ones to pick would be the landmine scene or any of those monologues at the end of the film from delroy lindo and those are just really really spectacular moments Let's put a score on it. 
Out of 10, Scott, what are you giving to Five Bloods? Look, even mediocre Spike is better than mediocre most directors. So it's getting 6.4. It is getting a positive rating. There are certainly a lot of worse stuff out there that you can um, watch. I think we are probably just a little bit harsher on it, right? Because we expect more from such a a masterful and influential filmmaker making, yeah. you know, a, a genuine epic, right? That uh, is yeah. trying to say a lot. Um, and so there is there is some disappointment there, but it's worth a watch. 6.4. Yeah, we didn't talk about how like the epic nature. I'd written that down as a potential talking point, but we didn't really ever get around to it. But yeah, this film really does is an epic like it's long. It starts it, you know, it starts pretty slowly and you meet all your characters. You get to know them a little bit. And then yeah, the first the first hour is almost like a hangout movie, which and then obviously it takes, you know, a, a huge shift, which I think is what epic movies, what epics do a lot. They're, you know, two or three different movies in one. Absolutely. I was about to say that. Yeah, because it, it feels like it's it's at least two movies here uh, mm-hmm. kind of fused into one for better or for worse. I think that in this case, it might be a little bit for worse. But uh, yeah, it, it really went for it really swung for the fences. And I just don't think that uh, it quite reached those fences, although I am more positive on it than you. I, I didn't have maybe as many. As many little things bother me as much, but I wonder if I would, if you came back and asked me. So when I when I write the review for the newsletter this week, I wonder if I'll think that I gave a lower score to it because I think <laughs> my score has been dropping slowly uh, over the last couple of days. But I, I am going to give it a seven point one. All right, that should do it for our discussion of the Five Bloods. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be talking about a couple recent items of news, including a, a big update about the twenty twenty one Academy Awards, as well as some recent casting news for Caitlin Deaver. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As promised before the break, Scott, let's turn it over to you as our resident Academy hater to talk about something that maybe the Academy Awards got right. Yeah, right. You know, we we hate him. We hate them and we love them, right? Like we we hate who they are and what they stand for, and yet they get we love them because they give us something to talk about, something interesting usually, something to they give us content, something to whine about usually. But um, yeah. Maybe they did something good. I mean, I, I think I think it's fair to say they did something pretty good here. They're recognizing an issue that we have, you know, that we really banged the drum about, particularly last year, and that is diversity and inclusion, right? This has been a trend for the last many years about the Oscars and the fact that for the last all of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, right, and it manifests itself in, in different ways. It is women not getting nominated for directing and and screenplays in some regards it is people of color not getting nominated in acting categories those are sort of some of some of the major quibbles obviously this year you know we had parasite winning uh best picture which was you know huge but i think that um it kind of that kind of masked some of the the problems again with the nominations again that no females getting nominated for director despite a great year for for female directors I think only Cynthia Erivo was the only nominee, person of color nominee for um, an acting category. So uh, these these problems are ever present, even when movies like uh, Parasite are, are winning Best Picture, which is obviously great. So the Academy has announced that 
Um, they are going to be applying a new uh, diversity and inclusion standards when determining the nominations. This will take effect not this year, not, not at the 2021 Oscars, but starting in 2022 at the 2022 Oscars. This is just very like rough sketches at the moment. Obviously, we don't even know exactly what these standards are going to be, what they're going to consist of. Is this going to be like quotas? Is this going to be like, I'm, I'm getting real deep into like my knowledge of like affirmative action law here, right? Like, is this going to be like a quota system? Is this going to be like a point system? What are they going to do exactly for, how, how exactly are they going to ensure that um, diversity and inclusion is implemented? I mean, one way that perhaps they'll be doing this is that they have, they're now going to do a hard 10 movies every year for best picture. Uh, you know, in the past few years, it has been like between six and 10, but 10 haven't really been nominated since like the early 2010s. Um, and like, if, if uh, 10 movies aren't getting nominated in 2019, like of all years, it's like, wh when are you going to nominate 10 movies? So I think this makes sense. It does open up the the you know gates a little bit more for for diverse movies to to make it in for best picture but i think again the things i'm really going to be watching for are female directors people of color directors people of color in acting categories these are the things that i think have really been the problem it hasn't necessarily been best picture um i mean obviously green book was was sort of a weird year but if you look up the last seven eight years and i and i wrote about this in a newsletter article a long time ago if you look like the last decade of best picture winners a lot of them are directed by foreign directors um and, and so um that, that category is not necessarily where where the problem has been but scott my worry with the with the diversity and inclusion standards i kind of expressed this to you in a, a little bit the other day as is this going to like I just get a little bit of a weird like best popular film vibe in a way with some of these because I recognize that yes, it is good that the Academy has identified this problem. It is good that they are taking steps that I firmly believe are going to right the problem, right? We are going to see more diverse movies nominated, more diverse actors, directors, hopefully getting nominated, but is there going to be sort of an asterisk next to it because they are using these new standards, right? It's like, we have to invent new rules. We have to invent new standards in order to get diverse movies in there. And, and obviously, right, history has proven that that is true and that that is the immediate fix for this problem. But my question is like, how are we gonna get to the point that we need to get to, I think, where these movies are being considered, you know, equally, like we don't, again, we don't have to invent new rules and standards in order to get Greta Gerwig nominated for best director. She is just going to be nominated because she is one of the five best directors, right? It, like it's, it, it, in a way, it's sort of this, a conversation that was brought up a couple of times last year of like, do we need to expand best director, right? Do we need to nominate seven or eight people for best director? And then it's like, or do a no, best that's, female directors category, which is right. That, that's not the about. point, right? The point is that Greta Gerwig should be getting nominated independent of any other factors over somebody like Todd Phillips, right? Um, just based on merit, merit alone for some, some for people would director. disagree with you, but yeah. And, and, and some people would be wrong. Um, and, and you know what, they're, they are okay to sit there in their wrongness and be wrong, but, I would argue you that the, the Academy sat there and nominated Todd Phillips because they thought he was a better director than Greta Gerwig last year. But yeah, I mean, maybe. But my, my point is, I think there are some implicit biases, perhaps, in that opinion, which which brought them to that opinion. And, and you know, again, people are going to disagree with me about that example. People are going to disagree with me about whatever example that I bring up. But the fact is, 
it is a problem. And like I said, my, my question yeah. is just, how do we get to the point where these films are being rightly recognized as just as meretricious as, you know, as a, a marriage story? Chill, or, with those, chill with those big words, man. You know, <laughs> Calm a, down. <laughs> a traditional a traditional Oscar Beatty film that we think of, you know, like I said, like a, like a marriage story, like a, uh, a Ford versus Ferrari, something like that, where uh, when, when are we going to see? Yeah, like, what's hilarious is that Little Women is a traditional Oscar Beatty film. It's a it is, yeah, but because because it has like strong female energy, like it, it, it all, all that happening. film has got is female energy. There's there's nothing but female energy in that film. Um, and yet, and yet, most men that I know, like even those who are like uh, very strongly opposed, like oh, I don't think this movie's for me or whatever. Like I enjoyed that a lot more than I thought I was. That is the opinion that I hear and see a lot from from dudes. Even even dudes who are like very who are not like me, right, and who are like not inclined yeah. to watch. This I mean, movie th- th- at there's all. implicit bias, but they're like, I didn't think this movie was going to be good because it's a female movie. Like that's right. like there there's sure. the implicit bias sitting right there in front yeah. of you. Well, yes, that, and also just like uh, to, to give people, you know, a little bit of off the hook. I think people are just like, this is not for me, and and maybe that is because um, it it is about females, but like. I understand that perspective too. Like there, there are movies about females which are going to um, be specifically about the female experience, right? That like I just can't relate to by design, right? Like, but that is how the film is designed. But yes, Speaking there. Of which, there have you seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire yet? <laughs> there, there are implicit implicit biases in all of this, and so you know when I when I look at a movie like Little Women, like that is why we come to the conclusion almost that we're like. A lot of people just must not have even watched this movie. Right? Like a lot of there must have been a bunch of Academy dudes in the Academy who just like didn't even give this movie a chance. I mean, that's t- that's totally possible. I, I a lot of ground to cover here in response to everything you're saying. Yeah, but I want to. Yeah, I think I, I, I get on a rant as I as I often do about the Oscars. But. I want to. I think hit the biggest point that you made around like what what does it take to get to the point where we no longer have to like put an asterisk next to the fil- like the diverse films that are nominated and or win for the Academy. And I think, Scott, the way that you do that is that you make these sort of rules changes and it takes time, right? Like you can't fix this problem in a day. You can't make the, there's 8,000 or something people in the Academy now or somewhere around that number. You can't make the 6,000 old white dudes that they have immediately recognize, you know, diverse films, diverse casting, diverse directing, like diverse you know, just filmmaking in general. You can't immediately make them realize that. So you put these sort of stop gaps in place as as the short term fixes to normalize a long term solution. Like that's the that's the way that I think about it. And so it takes it maybe maybe it takes five to ten years of these sort of you know oh it feels like very I don't know very like very on the nose regulations of right like I don't know like you have to nominate five you know five movies or whatever it's five to ten movies have to have to have have to be diverse, whatever that means. Maybe that means below the line production credits. Maybe that means, you know, black black stories or black characters in the film. I don't know. I mean, those things are going to be correlated, obviously. But whatever whatever that definition means, if there's a quota or, or if you have to even be diverse below the line to even get nominated, like whatever it is, whatever it ends up being, right? Like at some point, once these rules have been established, you know, the academy cycles through, it becomes the norm. Eventually, people stop thinking about about the fact that there is a rule in place and they just start thinking about those films 
as if they are the best films. They are the prestige films being made because they are the best. They are the prestige films being made. And I think that over time you see that change happen. And if we never, if we just say, okay, we can't make this rule change because it's just going to add an asterisk, then it's never going to happen. Like these changes are just never going to happen if we don't make some sort of rules to start normalizing that behavior. Because right now, a minority of the Academy is diverse. And yes, they are working towards changing that over time, but we're not there yet. And we're not going to be there for a while. And so you kind of have to do what they're doing here, I think. I think this is the right I think this is the right step towards a future 15 years, 10, 15 years from now, where we're at a place where we don't have to talk about this as much or at all. Yeah, I, I think it is too. And I mean, maybe to the point that I was making, right? Maybe now that there are these standards, right? Like maybe there's maybe if there's a quota or something of of diverse films that have to get nominated, yeah. maybe that's gonna cause some of these people who would not otherwise watch Little Women to be like, hey, I'm gonna watch this because here's a diverse film or whatever that meets the standards. And then they're going to watch the movie and be like, Hey, this movie actually goes hard. And then they're going to yeah. nominate it for, for best picture. And then, you know, to, to your point, 10 years down the line, right. When Greta Gerwig makes something else, they're going to be like, Hey, I remember, I really liked little women and yeah. Barbie. So I'm going to watch this movie now. Um, Makes me laugh. Cause I know that know, is the next movie she's doing with Margot Robbie. Right. Yeah. Even though 10 years ago, like I, I never would have watched this. But now the Academy's standards have changed things. And I realized, hey, that some of these movies are actually pretty good. Yeah. And and I think what is actually more likely than the Academy being forced to watch Little Women 2. That's obviously not the movie being made. But Greta Gerwig's next film. I think what's more likely, actually, is that studios who care a lot about getting Oscar nominations and who care a lot about winning Oscars are going to start making movies with diverse but you know, diverse below the line staff on it. If that's the Irishman, but he's black. <laughs> well, no, I'm not even talking about like on screen. I'm talking. I, I think it's yeah. more likely that yeah. the that the diversity requirements going to be required in the production team. So like in the you know on the studio on the set things like that because that like that that's what the inclusion writer thing is all about from a couple of years ago. That's mm-hmm. what was such a big deal about Just Mercy. Is that obviously it's a black story, but it like it's the first film with an inclusion writer in it and things like that and and that's what matters and i think that is that is what's more likely to come as a result of these awards than you know five thousand boomers in the academy watching just mercy next year like i think i think one of those is more likely than the other and i think it's that studios are going to take the initiative to make sure their films will be eligible for oscars and their films will get nominated for oscars by doing this and ultimately that's more important than the academy than the academy deciding that a, a a direct a female director or a film or a, a black filmmaker is you know one of the best one of the best five by the academy you know nominating body like that like what's more important is getting the studios behind it and i think the studios are, are willing to do that and are going to get behind it you know one way one way or another they're going to get behind it whether they like it or not i think because they care a lot about those awards and i think that's that's the ultimate good that's going on with what's what's happening here with the eligibility requirements yeah no i i, I think that's a good point and the only other thing to mention scott is just that the the Oscars did say, "Hey, we're gonna have the Oscars, right?" They they are they have confirmed yeah. that the Oscars will happen in April of 2021. Right? So they're they're pushing it back two months, and in light of that, they are also pushing back the eligibility deadline to February for so so movies as late as February 2021 releases can be considered for yeah. uh, Academy Awards and. And I think this makes sense. I think it gives studios yeah. flexibility, right? I think that's that's the key thing is that. You know, we're, you're talking about studios really wanting Oscar nominations, right? Christopher Nolan, if he really wants Tenet to be nominated for Oscars, right, he doesn't necessarily have to force it out in 
July July 31st now, I guess, which is yeah. the, the date now. He can Yo, say his hey, film's well, gonna be the first film out. Don't worry. Like it's it's coming out. I, I think possible. it is. But again, this is just this is just an example of what I mean. Like if, if there's an Oscar Beatty movie, which is like September yeah. coming out and the director's worried about box office numbers or whatever, but also wants to be considered for Oscars, they can say, Hey, we're gonna push this back to Valentine's Day 2021 and we're still good, right? We're we're still gonna well, hopefully the people will be going to theaters again by then. And also we're still going to be eligible for the Oscars. So again, I think a, a sensible move, probably it yeah. will be, I guess the next year of Oscar movies might be a little weirder because it's going to be a shorter window, I guess, but what Oscar I, movies probably, besides get out and black Panther come out in February though. Like, yeah, it, it, it'll all come out in the wash probably um, yeah. uh, ultimately. So I think this makes sense. Yeah. I, I think this is the right move. If they're going to, if they're going to have the awards this year, this is the right move. There was talk about them combining it with next year, but Scott, they had to have the 2021 awards because it's the last year they're going to be able to in, invite only white filmmakers to the show. So they have, hey, to, have one, yeah. they have to have one more year uh, for old time's sake. So it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I don't know. I think the five bloods might be a front runner right now. If we're, if we're talking early, yeah. early Oscar predictions, I think this might be the one at the top of the ballot. Yeah. But. I mean, for now though, but like we have, we haven't had a major yes. film release in three and a half months now. So we'll see. I don't know. I think Sonic's going to be nominated for Best Picture. I really do. It's going to get. It's going to do the double. It's going to actually no. It's Sonic's going to win Best Picture, but not win Best Animated Feature. <laughs> <laughs> That'll go to Onward or something. <laughs> yeah. Best popular. It would have been film. like. It would yeah. It would have been like if if uh, Parasite uh, had lost Best Foreign Film to Pain and Glory. But um, anyway, getting back uh, on topic, Scott. I know that you wanted to bring up uh, some casting news regarding uh, Dear Evan Hansen the movie. Yeah, so Dear Evan Hansen, for those of you unaware, was a Broadway musical that was really popular. I think it, it I became more aware of it in like 2017, but I don't know if it was actually running before that on Broadway. I mean, it, it started off Broadway and then went to Broadway. It doesn't matter. M- musical theater, people probably don't listen to this podcast, probably don't care that much about it. But uh, Dear Evan Hansen, Ben Platt was like the star of the musical. Obviously, he's become a lot more popular recently with Netflix shows like The Politician, uh, among other among other things that he's been up to recently. He's cast in that Richard Linklater film that's being shot over 22 years called Merrily We Roll Along opposite Beanie Merrily Feldstein. And speaking of Beanie Feldstein, her co-lead in Booksmart has been cast alongside Ben Platt as well in Dear Evan Hansen, uh, the film adaptation of that, with which Ben Platt is supposed to be returning for to play uh, Evan Hansen, that titular role. Caitlin Deaver is going to be uh, is going to be starring, at least to be rumored to be starring alongside. And really, I don't know if there's much to discuss here, except that I love Caitlin Deaver and I'm really excited to see her uh, do anything at this point. I mean, since the year she had last year between Booksmart and Unbra- and um, unbelievable and uh, not to mention her you know performances earlier on in her career as well and tv sh- more tv shows like justified things like that but also in short term 12 uh just an absolutely spectacular performance from her and that entire cast in, in that film just leaves me more excited for anything that she's doing and the fact that she's doing this is awesome and i cannot wait uh to hear the news that she is cast in the last of us tv show for hbo but we'll wait more on that yeah, no, this is uh, this is exciting, right? I, I'm still just hung up on the fact that ben, Beanie Feldstein is going to be in uh, Merrily We Roll Along. 
when in Lady Bird, she played a character who is in the musical of Merrily We Roll Along, which is just kind of funny uh, history uh, coming full circle, I guess. But um, yeah, no, th this is this is cool news. We'll get to. I, I wrote in the newsletter we haven't gotten to see her sing before, but um, yeah. Why why are you adding her? You're like maybe she can't sing. I'm like why would you do this? There's no way. There's no way that someone's getting cast in this film alongside Ben Platt who can't sing. Like there's just so many young actresses that can sing out there. It it has happened before uh, in Hollywood. Yes, but not with any. Songs. But what young? But what young actor and actress has been has been cast? I like it, Russell Crowe and all that crap with those films is like different and like is is it what Brosnan yeah. uh, as well? Pierce Brosnan, Mamma Mia. And Mamma yeah, Mia, Pierce yeah. Brosnan and Mamma Mia. Like oh, yeah. like that's one thing. These are like bona fide A list well, movie stars we're talking about. Like the, yeah. you don't have to cast Caitlyn Deaver if she can't sing. Yeah, the the guy from the last Mamma Mia movie was actually not very good either. But um. But anyway, like, yeah, no, I think she I think she could probably sing, you know, like I am not always big on on movie adaptations of Broadway musicals because I'm like, I would just like the musical is going to be better than this. Right. It's going to be more fleshed out. It's going to have like actual seasoned performers, you know, performing the role of not Hollywood ben actors. Flat. See right, ben that's, flat. And, and that's where I was going. I was going to say yeah. that is why it makes sense. Right. If you're going to do the movie, get Ben Platt. Like if you're going to if you're going to do the in the heights movie which that yeah. that was supposed to come out this summer they got anthony ramos i think is his name who played hamilton for a while i believe after or played someone in hamilton um for a while after the original cast right get get the broadway performers try to make this as close to a broadway experience on screen as you can um and so th that is always my inclination so when i see like caitlin deaver getting cast I, there there is always a little bit of pause of like okay they're just casting her because she's like an it actress of the moment is she really going to be right for this role probably yes in the end and obviously i want to see her and whatever she is going to do next um but this is an interesting choice like i didn't see this coming i think a couple points there is that with anthony ramos it's not only so i think he was in he was in the original hamilton i think he was um hamilton's son in the original oh in the okay, original that's right. yeah in the original cast but uh -huh. i think also and most relevant to your point here is that he played a character in in the heights so he he's not playing the same character uh because he's the he's the lead in the film adaptation he i think he was like the cousin or i don't know all the characters that well uh in in the play or in the musical but i think he he's also again to your point uh, an original an original cast member or a cast member in the in the heights uh, Broadway Broadway version and more and to your point here as well I think this is one of the reasons why Fences probably works well though not a musical but literally just ripped that production off of Broadway and put it on put it into a film adaptation with Denzel Washington and Viola Davis and um, it was successful people really liked it I mean I don't know how much money it actually made in theaters but it was well received yeah I, I mean I, it is different for for plays I musical. think but yeah. I get I get what you're saying yeah yeah, I think just but what do you take when you take the, the talent of the original? The yeah, exactly. Yeah. When, when you're taking the people who did it for months and months on on Broadway and whether it's musical or, or just being um, dramatic, dramatic theater. Um, yeah, it's successful when you actually take that cast and talent and you put it onto the screen and they're doing it here, which is great. And with that, that should do it for episode 97 of Some Like It, Scott. We ended up going pretty long on this episode. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Sorry for extending it with my extended rants about the Oscars, but uh, no, uh, I, I guess I guess I don't really have any thoughts. Stay inside, please. Keep wear wear your freaking masks because my my mom was talking about today how she went to the eye doctor here 
where things are really bad, right? We still have like record hospitalizations over the past week. And she was the only person wearing a mask. In the eye doctor, in the eye doctor of all places, right? Like it, it seems like a place you would want to be very careful. And so- Especially getting just, near your eyes, which is like yes, the most contagious it, point. Exactly. Yeah. So be, be conscious of that because there's also like a gaslighting that goes on, right? When no one else is wearing a mask, then like it makes my I'm mom or who, whoever yeah. feel like, oh, I'm the weird one for wearing a mask. When, no, these are the freaking science deniers, all these people who are in here not wearing masks. And that is what leads people to take their masks off because they're like, oh, I don't want to be the only one who's wearing a mask when yeah. really this shouldn't be a matter of like, you know, s- s- social like uh, awareness Conformity. or whatever. This, this yeah, yeah, this should be a, a, I'm doing this to protect myself and to protect other. Like if you, if you don't, I'm doing this to protect others. And if you don't care about others, you're protecting yourself still. So do it for that reason. Let me quote Scott Harvey. I'm sorry I ranted for 20 minutes about the Oscars. Also, let me rant for five more minutes about COVID-19. <laughs> There's a lot to rant about right now. No, it's fine. No, I, I totally agree. And all the language you're speaking around, social conformity and things like that, speaks to my college major. So throw me back to that, Scott. Love those ash conformity studies if you ever studied any psychology. Uh, if you're the only one saying that the line is a certain length, even though it's clearly that length, you're going to eventually change your answer because you feel so weird that seven other people are telling, are gaslighting you into thinking that. Uh, there you go. Something else. So there you go. Yeah. Wear there your mask, you guys. Um, Boston's still slowly rolling back out, and Massachusetts overall is getting a lot better because I think we're phasing our uh, reopening of of the state overall. New York is doing things similar to that, and not every state has that luxury of their leaders gradually reopening things and allowing their to be pro- like uh, incremental progress in the reopening. And and so in those situations where there's not incremental progress being made and, and, you know, checks and balances being put on that process, you need to take matters into your own hand in terms of being safer. And so absolutely. If you're, if you're in a state that like Tennessee is kind of at risk in that way, if you want to live your life in disregard of others, you can, uh, but uh, I'd, I'd echo Scott's thoughts here around wearing your mask. That's why we share a name. Absolutely. And that's why our podcast is called Some Like It's Scott. And if you like it, Scott, wear your mask. And with that, where can people find you on Twitter? <laughs> that was a great segue. Uh, I'm at Scarby then. And I can be found at Shelton2013. Honestly, this episode has been great for, for something. We've had some really off-the-wall comments from me <laughs> today. <laughs> Please follow our podcast on Twitter as well at, at MediaPugPod. Subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes. And don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Check the Patreon out for yourself and pick the tier that's right for you. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon or you're not able to, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts, where we'd also appreciate if you rated and reviewed us as well as subscribed and shared. And I have said enough. Finally, I will shut up. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies and we'll be back next week with a review of not the king of staten island instead a movie you definitely haven't heard of baby teeth until then however for scott harvey i'm scott shelton we'll see you next time directed by a woman so it's gonna be good Thank you.